Welcome to the OCR Underground Show. Each week, you get the latest research, training secrets of top coaches, and everything you need to crush your next obstacle course race and finish burpee-free. Here's your host, SGX coach, Mike Diebler. All right, what is up, everyone? Welcome to the OCR Underground. I'm your host, Mike Diebler. This is episode number 60. Uh, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode, just head on over to ocrunderground.com slash episode dash 60. And don't forget to subscribe. However, you might be listening to this podcast, make sure you subscribe and get uh, all the episodes as they come out so you don't miss a thing. Uh, to get started, I am really excited about a new program that I am about to launch, and I wanted to let you guys know uh, about the brand new four-month training program that I just created. That's right, it's four months. Typically, you don't see training programs online that are that long, but this is for the Ultra Beast. And if you are planning on training for an Ultra Beast, you need to put some work in. Um, So I have a a proven method that I put together that I am for the first time releasing and uh, wanted to let you guys know about it. So if you have signed up for an Ultra Beast, you are taking on a lot. And it is a lot of time, a lot of commitment, and a lot of stress you're going to be putting on your body. And you need a systematic approach to tackle this big challenge. And what I tried to do the best I could was lay out everything that you're going to need to do from your strength training to help protect your body from all the the wear and tear that's going to be going on to get you strong for the obstacles and and really just to get you moving better and take care of yourself and and strengthen those joints. Uh, We have your running program that's zone specific. So you are doing everything possible to train your aerobic system, your anaerobic system, and really putting it all together so you can make it for these hours that you're going to be out on the course. Um, And we're going to go through your obstacle training to help best prepare you for not just being on your feet for you know, 10 plus hours potentially, uh, but just being ready to attack some of those obstacles when you're just totally physically and mentally fatigued. Uh, and we put it all together in a program for you. So I'm, I'm really excited about this. Uh, for right now, as our, our launch, we're going to offer it for $30 off. So it's only $49 for this four-month program. And as an added bonus, for the first 10 people that do sign up for it, I have a a few Handmaster Pluses that I'm going to be giving out. So one of the sponsors of this show, an awesome grip training tool that you can use anywhere. So you're going to get one free uh, when you sign up for this program. So if you want to learn more, just head on over to ocrunderground.com slash ultra. Well, since I brought up Hammaster Plus, there's a few other sponsors of the show that I want to take a few minutes and thanks for supporting us. Uh, first up, we have Mobilitas. And if you happen to be signed up for an ultra or really any race for that matter, hopefully you do. You are investing in some good quality soft tissue work with a variety of soft tissue tools like foam rollers and balls and lacrosse balls and all these cool things that are out there. Mobilitas makes some high quality tools that are really going to help with your training and your performance. You're going to move better, feel better better, race better, uh, taking care of your body at the same time, improving tissue quality, improving circulation, and and all sorts of great stuff. And I know we've talked a lot about uh, the importance of foam rolling on this show, Uh, but if you don't have anything you're currently using, I highly recommend checking out Mobilitas. You can visit them at yourjointsshouldnthurt.com. And don't forget, if you use the promo code OCRU10, you'll get 10% off your order. And I also want to let you guys know about Umqua Community College and specifically about the OCR team there. So if you are in college and or know of anybody in college that is into OCR, 
you can actually compete as a collegiate sport at Umpqua Community College, which is the first OCR collegiate team. So pretty amazing stuff that they're doing. Uh, not only will you get a, a great education in a beautiful, on a beautiful campus, you can also participate in OCR in a variety of different events out there, Spartan, Tough Mudder, and, and other events that occur in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, not only do you get to train while you go to school, but there's possibility for scholarship and you do get in-state tuition for being part of the team. So pretty cool stuff there. Uh, Make sure you check out the show notes and uh, visit Umpqua Community College for more information. All right. Well, in this episode, there's going to be a whole lot of me. I don't have an interview planned for this episode. I didn't want to delay it anymore. So hopefully you don't mind listening to me babble on for a little bit. I do have one uh, guest race recap so you do get a little break from my voice Uh, but it's going to be a whole lot of me and then don't worry I'll have some great interviews uh, coming up in some future episodes but for the time being in our Inside Mike's Mind segment I'm going to talk about altitude training and I know this is something we have talked repeatedly in the past before but I continually see more and more questions come up online so we are going to try and simplify this and make it as easy as possible to help you prep for any races up at altitude. Uh, In our race recap I have on Coach CJ Wagner with Jim Jones and Misfit Strength. He is going to talk about the first race of this year in the Honor Series uh, in San Antonio, the Spartan uh, Super and Sprint. In our research review, I'm going to talk about a simple trick you can do uh, that was shown to help you jump higher and farther. And then finally, we're going to take a a deep dive into core training. Now, this is something probably are doing uh, in some regard. It's one of those things that gets misused and misinterpreted. And we're going to talk about what core training actually is, the three components of, of the core that you should be focusing on, and really some good takeaways to help you improve your your training by really building that core foundation to help you move better and more efficient, efficiently. All right, well, let's get into this episode. All right, well, it's time for me to ramble on on the Inside Mike's Mind segment of this show, and I want to talk about altitude training, and there are so many different ways we can go with this topic, but I want to try and keep it simple because there is a lot of information out there, and do you need a breathing mask? Do you need to go and sit in an oxygen chamber? And, you know, there's lots of different things you can do, some cheap, some expensive, but I want to keep this practical on things that you can actually do. So with races like Big Bear coming up, there are a lot of concern about racing at altitude and how do you prepare and altitude sickness and all these things. Now, some people are going to be more susceptible to altitude sickness and things like that. So you want to just take every precaution that you can. And even when you do take a lot of precautions, things can still happen. Uh, So just just keep that in mind. But at least what do you have control over? And let's focus on those things. Um, I do want to mention I did write an article for Spartan on this topic on how to train for altitude when you're not at altitude, uh, where I cover some of the things that I'm going to talk about in this episode. But uh, just visit the show notes and you can uh, check out that article and read a little bit more detailed on some of the things. Um, But with all the questions and concerns and, and all the crazy things out there, let's keep it simple. I really think it boils down to three really main things that you should work on. And, and really, if you're just doing some solid nutrition, solid training, 
I don't really think you need to worry about altitude at all. It's going to be a little bit tough in the beginning, but as long as you're warming up properly and getting uh, getting your body to perform aerob- as aerobically as possible, I, I think you're not really going to notice the effects of altitude that much. Right? It might take a little bit longer to get going, but when it's all said and done, the race is going to be hard. You're going to be out of breath. You're going to struggle, and you're you're going to be totally fine. So it's just one thing that. Sometimes it's going to get into your head a little bit. So just remember, yeah, it's it's going to be a little bit harder than normal, maybe. You know, you might not even notice the, the difference that much. So don't psych yourself out. And I know a lot of times we put so much stress on, on these things that we really don't need to. So just focus on what you have control over, and that's your, your training and your nutrition. And if you can focus on those things, it's going to go a long way. Um, but really, the three things that you, I think you can pay maybe a little bit more attention to. Uh, so number one is breath work. Now, that this is the main idea behind altitude training, right? We uh, have less pressure of oxygen up at altitude, so it's a little bit harder to get that oxygen into the blood, uh, into the muscles, and you know, uh, help pr- uh, provide energy for the muscles to do whatever they're supposed to do, right? So since it makes that a little bit harder, your respiration rate goes up, you're breathing heavy, and you're just a little bit more fatigued because you're trying a lot harder to maintain the same intensity that you uh, would do at a lower intensity, for example. So really just working on breathing and there's a million different breathing techniques out there. I think just start with just being mindful of your breath, right? Just slowing down your breathing. A lot of people are kind of stuck in, they're almost hyperventilating. They're, they're inhaling constantly too much without really getting that exhale out, right? So when we breathe, the inhale will be a little bit shorter that compared to our, our exhale. So one, just pay attention to that. When you breathe, how long does it take you to inhale? How long does it take you to exhale? Should be a little bit longer to exhale compared to your inhale, right? And just slowing down your breathing. Can you breathe through your nose, right? When you're at rest, there's no reason to breathe through your mouth, maybe unless you're congested or something like that. But just under normal situations, when you're breathing at rest, it should be through your nose. And one kind of uh, challenge I always put on myself is when I'm training, my goal is to maintain nasal breath nasal breathing for as long as possible, right? There's going to be a point when intensity just gets too much for me to maintain something uh, with just nasal breathing, breathing. So I'll have to eventually switch over to mouth breathing, but I'm going to try and delay that process for as long as possible. And, and actually in races, I try and do the same thing. I'm going to try and start nasal breathing for as long as I can and then switch over uh, from when I can't maintain that anymore. So one, just start sim- something simple like that, focusing on inhale, exhale, uh, paying attention to how long each breath cycle lasts. Now, one thing that you can work on are some breath holds too. And I'm not saying anything crazy here, but here's a good test for you to see if you even really need to be worried about something like this. If you were to take a normal inhale, a normal exhale, and then pinch your nose, hold your breath, right? If you just do that how, and then time how long you can hold your breath until it first starts becoming uh, to be uncomfortable. So not even a max uh, exhale, uh, or, or I'm sorry, a max hold. This would be to first level of discomfort. So there's a little bit of subjective, uh, subjective measurement here, but that should actually hit at least 20 seconds, more likely 30 seconds. If you're in that 20 to 30 second range or, or over 30 seconds, you're doing a pretty good job. But if you exhale, hold your breath, and then all of a sudden you're at like 10 seconds and you need to you kind of panic and need to inhale again, that's a sign that we have some kind of breathing dysfunction there. So your goal is to, to make it to 30 seconds. So this is one of those things you can practice the test a little bit and just doing short breath holds, right? So when you inhale, 
try a short breath hold, just a few seconds, nothing crazy, and then exhale all the air out, and then again, give it a short little exhale, just a few seconds. Just doing that, again, being mindful of your breath, and you're just getting better at that exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen. That's the whole point of this breathing thing in the first place is to get more efficient at that. And just getting a full breath in and having these short little holds is a great great first step. Right On the opposite end, if you take a deep breath in and hold your breath, you should be able to hold that for about a minute. Right, So uh, a minute on the inhale, hold, uh, about 30 seconds on the exhale, hold. If you can't hit those numbers, then you're the person that I would strongly recommend you start doing some breathing drills, right? So focus on that breath, diaphragmatic breathing. There's lots of different drills that you can do. I can put a couple videos in the show notes to help show you things like 90-90 breathing and crocodile breathing. And, and these are great things to just help kind of restore a more natural breathing process. And really the whole point being uh, to be more efficient and to get better at that exchange of, of oxygen, carbon dioxide. And, and a great book to read if this is uh, an interesting topic for you is uh, The Oxygen Advantage. So I'll, I'll put some links in the show notes for, for the book and some of those uh, videos there. The second piece, and it really goes right along with this, is just aerobic training in general. When you do aerobic training, you see the same benefits occur that happen when you go up to altitude. So if you can't get up to al- altitude and have your body adapt, the next best thing other than breath work is going to be just get really good at aerobic training. Now, running obviously is probably going to be a great place to start here, but it could be anything. Now, the main thing to focus on is let's get your aerobic system as efficient as possible. And I do think some some lower intensity, steady state aerobic training is a great fit here. Because, And again, it's a great way to recover if you're doing lots of high intensity workouts. So making sure you're taking the time for aerobic specific training. So in order to do this, you need to know what anaerobic and aerobic thresholds are. You do need to be tracking your heart rate or at least your breath. If you are super out of breath, you are past your aerobic um, maximum, maximum aerobic rate. You're you're hitting anaerobic capacity now. So we want to make sure you're you're out of breath, but very slightly, just slightly discomfort breathing. Um, I usually use that whole nasal breathing. If you can't breathe through your nose, you're probably at too high of an intensity here. Uh, you can use a formula like uh, Phil Maffetone, uh, the running coach. He came up with uh, the 180 formula. So basically, take your age and uh, you know subtract your age from 180. And that gives you your estimated uh, aerobic max heart rate. Now, he has some variables that you can add or subtract based on how much you work out and your age and things like that. Um, So you can uh, put a link so you can see exactly some of those. But again, just 180 minus your age to give you a rough idea of about where your aerobic uh, threshold would be for some of this training. So just making sure one or two days a week you're, you're hitting that aerobic training to get some of those adaptations that we're looking for there. And for our final piece, talking about uh, hydration and nutrition. Now, this can be a huge topic, so I'm going to do my best to just keep this simple to the point and really give you some good takeaways. But, you know, water is one of those big things that's, you know, everybody just kind of doesn't really think about it, knows it's important, but doesn't really pay attention much to it. But when we're going to altitude, this is going to be increasingly important, especially to do a competition. So the week leading up to it, just making sure you're staying hydrated. But realize once you get to altitude, your need for water intake is going to go up because you are more likely to be dehydrated. And this is one of the reasons they recommend drinking so much water when you go to altitude. Um, But if you think about it, when you get to altitude, you probably are going to be breathing more, right? Because uh, of that oxygen um, uh, saturation levels going down. So we need to breathe more to try and get more oxygen in. 
Uh, a lot of people don't think about it, but when you breathe out, if you ever breathe like on a mirror and it fogs up, that's water. So when you breathe out, you're actually expiring water as well. And the more you breathe, the more water you're going to lose. Um, some studies have showed for men, they might actually lose an extra 1,900 uh, milliliters of water, which is about 64 ounces through respiration. Uh, women, about 850, which is about 28 ounces. Um, so that's a big deal. So that extra breathing is going to increase the need for more water intake. And as well as we're just going to uh, most likely one of the changes at, at, uh, at altitude is you're going to pee more and there'll be an extra, uh, again, research shows around 500 milliliters of extra uh, urine loss so or water from urine um, excretion so extra water there so uh, I think it goes without saying just make sure you're stay you're staying hydrated uh, adding your electrolytes to that water is a good idea as well uh, just get a wide range of, of different electrolytes you know sometimes we just hear like sodium but sodium potassium magnesium calcium all, all going to be important so whether it's a supplement form or through food making sure you're getting that in there uh, as for food one of the big things we want to make sure we realize is at altitude, there's going to be a higher energy expenditure. You're going to be working out at higher intensities. Um, everything is going to feel a little bit harder for the most points. Your heart rate's going to be elevated more. Your body's going to be working harder. Uh, so that means there's going to be a more carbohydrate utilization. So we want to make sure that we are increasing that carb intake a little bit to help support um, that energy requirement. We need to keep our glycogen stores filled because this is going to be a big problem if they start to become depleted and we're trying to run. I remember, uh, I believe it was two years ago at Big Bear, getting to the starting line and having a smaller carbohydrate breakfast uh, before the bees, probably not a big uh, or a great idea, but I remember getting to the starting line already being hungry. And if you're hungry, you're in trouble. And I definitely paid for it later in that race. So uh, increase that carbohydrate intake and really break it up throughout the day. This may not be how you normally eat. You might do things like intermittent fasting, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but in this specific case, that might not be the best option. And you might want to stick to more frequent feeding, a little bit higher <coughs> carbohydrate intake. Uh, actually, carbohydrates can help fight off some of the uh, 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 symptoms of altitude issues, like one big one being loss of appetite. Um, so that might actually help with this. And, uh, and actually some research is showing there's an increase in oxygen saturation when we consume carbohydrates. So all good things, making sure we are getting that, uh, uh, a, a sufficient amount of carbohydrates in there. Again, when you look at the research, everybody's going to be different, but you'll see around 12 to 13 grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight per day. Uh, again, there'll, there'll be fluctuations if you're a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, um, but it's just one thing. Pay attention to it. Uh, probably go a little bit more heavy on the carbohydrate side than you're used to. Um, unless you're doing a ton of carbohydrates, then you may not have to increase it, but I think uh, for most people, they kind of watch those carbohydrates, and in this case, we probably want to increase it a little bit. Um, and then one last point I want to bring up with, uh, there's lots of deficiencies that we might be at normally, and when we're exposed to altitude, if we have these deficiencies, it might make things worse. Uh, one of the big ones being iron deficiencies. So you may not know, maybe you've had blood work and you know if you have an iron deficiency, uh, but it's something to just keep an eye on. So again, you can do supplements, but you can find foods that are higher in uh, uh 
iron, excuse me, uh, things like shellfish, uh, spinach, um, organ meats, legumes, um, red meat, things like that. So just uh, consuming that with your carbohydrates is going to be a good idea just to kind of cover your bases there. So hopefully all that made sense. Uh, again, I think these are simple things you can do without investing a lot of time and energy into trying to prep and make uh, altitude adaptations occur in your body. And really just some simple things uh, from, from breathing, from your training to your nutrition. If you have these things covered, I think you're going to be totally fine and not really have to worry about any of those issues with uh, racing at altitude. Hey, Mike. Thanks again for having me. Uh, coming at you with the Spartan Race Honor Series, first one of the 2019 season held in San Antonio, Texas. Saturday was a super and Sunday was a sprint. Now, this was the first time they've ever done this course in San Antonio, so I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I didn't know if it was going to be more flat or if they were going to utilize some hills. Uh, the races here in Texas, sometimes you can get a nice good hill and they will have you run up and down that Dallas a few years ago. Anybody who did that knows exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to go into the terrain. The terrain here, lots of loose rocks all over the place. A lot of people tripping, uh, just trying to keep their feet. Little steep hills here and there thrown throughout the course. Good job on not having it too close to each other. Nothing too crazy on the steepness, especially if you've done a mountain series. This this was definitely a flatter course. Uh, the water crossing, definitely an interesting water crossing. Uh, one of the longer ones I've done, not the longest, but nothing more than waist high. Uh, we had to go off to the side. They had a little waterfall, so if you did that, you you were DQ'd. If you went down the way that they had you do, uh, no, no issues. Now I'm gonna go more into, into the obstacles themselves. Uh, I'm gonna go with the first one, Beater. That was in the Super on Saturday, but it was not in the Sprint on Sunday. This obstacle has those bars that rotate. One thing you wanna do here, uh, you just wanna keep that momentum going. So when you're going, you grab the bar, if you have to grab with both hands, grab with both hands. If you can reach out to the other one as it's swinging, go for it. But definitely try and keep your momentum going because if you grab it and you stop, you're going to have to get your momentum going again, getting some swings in there to get to the next bar, whether it's a moving bar or a standstill bar. Just keep that momentum going. Olympus. Uh, only hitting Olympus because of one thing, and that is where they had the burpees. I've Normally, you just go off to the side, do your burpees. No, you, ha you had to go up a little cliff to get up there and do your burpees. I saw some age groupers and elites having to climb up there and do their burpees and continue on. They had a tunnel on Saturday, which anybody who's ever done the Austin Super knows that they used to have tunnels there that you would have to go through and they were concrete or plastic. But these ones were more of ones that you find like in a kid zone area. If you remember as you were a kid going through and just being able to run through it, it was actually a lot of fun. I hope they bring those tunnels back. 
and the monkey bars. So Sparta is doing a really good job now of making the monkey bars a lot harder. They have a pretty sizable gap. I saw a lot more people dropping on them than I have in the past, especially on Sunday with it being misty. I saw quite a bit of people who have strong grips just dropping. So one thing I would recommend to actually do to test your grip for some of these obstacles when it's raining, guys, just get your hands wet and do some dead hang work. It's the best way to get ready for the elements because you don't know if it's going to rain that day. Spartan has done that job, has done a good job, I think, of enticing people to volunteer. There were a lot of volunteers at this particular site. And good job to them. They kept that race going. They, every volunteer that I talked to had a good attitude. Um, and to anybody who's listening to this who was a volunteer at that particular venue, good job. Uh, and that is all I have for this one. I hope to come back with you soon with another race course overview. Thanks again for having me. And I'll talk to you next time. All right, it's time for our research review, and many of you know that I was a, a jumper and a big uh, fan of plyometrics and jumping, so when I see an, uh, a study that's going to help you jump further, I jump right on it. Uh, this one comes from the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, and they want to look at the effects of internal versus external cueing or instructions on jump performance. Now, this one might be for more geared towards the coaches out there on how to instruct people to do certain movements, but I think anyone can really get a lot out of this when you just kind of think and change your perspective a little bit. Um, what they did was they compared, uh, like I said, internal versus external cues. That might not make sense, but we'll, we'll kind of explain what they did in the study. Um, so the participants, the first, uh, they got five jumps, and after a warm-up, the first jump, they were simply told, jump as far as you can. And they use this as a baseline. So however far they could jump, that's what their, their baseline measurement was. Then for the next two jumps, and they randomized how they did this, but they were given either internal or external focused instructions. So for example, the internal focused instructions were they told them, jump as far as you can, thinking about extending your knees as quickly as you can when you jump. So a lot of the cueing and feedback we give with exercise when, when we're working with a coach or a trainer is often this internal focus where you're focusing on a, on a, a muscle within the body. Uh, so they did the same thing for the next two jumps. They, they gave these instructions and had them jump as far as they could and measured it, labeling these ones the internally focused jumps. And then finally, they were given two more jumps with externally uh, focused instructions. And here they were told to jump as far as you can, trying to get as close to the green target as you can. So they had a cone there or a target, and now they had a, a visual that they had to reach for. So now it's not uh, as simple as, it's not just an instruction, but you're given a task to complete. So you're told to jump as close to this, this target as possible. And when they measured the results and compared the internal versus the external, the external were significantly further than the baseline, where the, the baseline, uh, that one where they just were just told jump as far as you can, um, that was pretty similar to the same distance as the internal focus. Um, on average, they were jumping uh, 140 centimeters, um, where the externally focused were actually jumping 154 centimeters on average with just that extra external cueing. Um, so 
that's in inches, that's on average, they're jumping about five and a half inches further, which is pretty significant considering they didn't do anything for training. This was in one session. So really just how they set them up led to either more or less success with this task. So what I want you to think about and really get from a study like this, because this is not a standalone study. There is a lot of research on this topic on instructions that are given and um, performance based on those instructions. So if you're coaching somebody uh, or training a, a client, you should be thinking about these more external cues. So instead of telling them to squeeze your core or tighten your glutes or whatever it might be, some people might get that, but most people, they don't really understand how that's relating to what they're trying to do. Instead, you give them an external focus or give them a job to complete while doing an exercise. Um, sometimes that's hard to explain, but uh, one example I often give is if I see somebody doing, uh, we're going to talk about core a little bit later in this episode, uh, doing a core exercise like a shoulder tap. So like you're in a push-up position and you're going to take one hand and touch the opposite shoulder and then you're just all going to alternate back and forth. Now you need to be very stable and uh, have good core stability, especially in the transverse plane because of that rotational force being put on the body. If you don't, what you're gonna see are the hips start to rise and twist, and we see a lot of rotation occur here. And really, we wanna see stability. We wanna see as little movement as possible in this exercise. So as you are doing a shoulder tap exercise, if I see your hips going side to side, I could try saying like squeeze your core, tighten your abs, you know, giving you something to focus on internally, um, I might see some improvements, but probably not. I'm not going to really see much change because you're not going to understand how to use the core I, the way I want you to use it. So instead, I can give you a task. So as you set up it for a push-up position, I can take two foam rollers, put them next to your hips. So now you have a foam roller kind of standing vertically uh, balanced next to each hip. Now what I'm going to tell you is I'm going to give you a task. I'm going to say don't knock over these foam rollers. So if you were to pick your hand up and, and move your hip off to the side, you'll knock the roller over and you're going to know right away that you did it wrong. So instead, you're going to understand and learn really quickly. And that's the whole point of working out, right? We're, we're trying to learn how to do something a little bit better. So now you lift that arm up. And if you start to feel some pressure on that roller, you're going to figure it out. I don't have to tell you anything. I don't have to tell you to squeeze that or tighten this, whatever it might be. You're just going to know I need to prevent my hips from moving. Here's how I'm going to do it. Right. So now it's less about me coaching you and more about you figuring it out. Right. So externally focused cues are, are going to be uh, much more beneficial. I'm not saying let's throw away all internal, but uh, if you are doing primarily internal cueing, uh, it's a great idea to start focusing on external. And now if you're not working with a coach and you're just working out in general, you can still take a lot from this and just start thinking about this um, taking almost taking yourself out of your body as you do these movements and see what's what's a way I can uh, turn this into a task versus thinking about muscles to squeeze right so maybe you're doing something um, like a squat and you notice that when you squat you keep leaning forward uh, excessively and your chest is kind of facing the floor well now I want you to think hey try and keep the logo on your shirt if you have a logo on your t-shirt keep that facing the wall in front of you or maybe there's a mirror and it's, can you see that logo as you go down in a squat? 
right? So now you have a task. I don't have to tell you really much about your former technique. I'm just going to give you something to focus on like, hey, can you see that shirt logo as you go down into a squat? If you can, all right, we know at least you're not leaning forward excessively. If you can't, then you're leaning forward and we need to start to figure it out, all right? So just uh, start to think about this as you're performing your exercises. How can you turn it almost into like a game or a task versus thinking about what muscles uh, are supposed to be working, right? When you do the movement right, the muscles work right, right? So that's the important thing is getting the movement down, not trying to figure out what muscles need to do what. That's going to be just too complex. And really, the, the body's just not going to want to work that way. It's going to want to complete a task. And you just want to set up the exercise uh, with with some of those things in mind. So hopefully that helps you out and, and gets uh, improve some of the technique and, and get you doing some exercises better. And, and hey, maybe get you a couple inches on your, your vertical jump there. All right, well, we're going to take a deep dive into core training. And this could be one of those topics where you're just kind of totally opening up a can of worms. There's uh, that's It's just one of those words that just gets thrown around and people kind of understand what it is, but a lot of times not really. When we hear the core, people typically just think abs. Um, but hopefully by now, people are starting to understand that it's much bigger than just your, your ab muscles that we're talking about with the core. And when we look at all of the muscles of the, the trunk, we just see how many there are and all the different tasks and responsibilities they have. So core training is not really just one thing. There's a, there's quite a few things that are involved in the core. So trying to improve those things, become more efficient is, is, you know, under this umbrella of core training. So first we kind of look at what the core is, uh, or what the core does. It, it controls stability of, uh, the lumbo lumbo complex. And that's basically the spine and the hips and just controlling posture and, and movement through there. It provides stability. Um, it controls posture. It transfers energy throughout the body. Uh, if I'm going to look at it real simply, it's basically the connection between the upper and lower body. And it's about transferring force, transferring information, communicating, and, and all these different things that occur in the core. So it has lots of different responsibilities. Um, we can break the core down into three systems or three areas that we're going to want to pay attention to. We have our uh, deep stabilizers, sometimes referred to as the inner unit. We have our global stabilizers, sometimes referred to as the outer unit, and we have our global movers. Um, so again, we, we have this unique ability to stabilize and move and, and uh, do all these things. And so we need a lot of different muscles to make all of this happen. Uh, so if we kind of break each one of these down, we can start with our deep stabilizers. Uh, these are muscles like the pelvic floor, the multifidus, um, the, the diaphragm, diaphragm, the transverse abdominis. So these are really deep muscles. These are muscles that you typically aren't going to really think about contracting. Sure, there's certain exercises that you might be able to do, but really, you know, if I ask you to contract your multifidus as hard as you can, you're going to have no clue what I'm, what I'm talking about. So these respond more from reflex. They, they provide information and um, sense different positions of the spine. So they're this first line of defense for providing some stability. So they are very close to the spine and to the hips. And uh, we see these things with um, breath and posture and pelvic control, um, but they don't create a lot of force. They aren't going to create a lot of movement. They're just that uh, initial engagement to uh, create some force there. 
the the transverse abdominis is one that's gotten a lot of attention over the years um and actually it's one of those muscles that we kind of overkilled right a, a study came out that showed that there was a delay in the activation of the transverse abdominis in some people that have back pain and so people kind of freaked out and said well transverse abdominis causes back or issues with transverse abdominis is the root of all back pain and we need to draw our belly button in and all this stuff and we just took it way too far and, and overboard and, and really what it showed is that when there is a delay in engagement or activation of some of these muscles that it reduces stability and it could cause some issues down the road like back pain and and other things but we can't blame it on one muscle all these muscles work together to provide stability there uh, moving uh kind of out to another layer, we have our global stabilizers. Now we're going to have a little bit more direct control over motion, right? These are some muscles that you are going to start to create some movement and a little bit more stability from, uh, unlike our deep stabilizers, we have a little bit more power and, and control of our global stabilizers. They're more superficial. You can feel these. Uh, these are things like your internal, external obliques, your hip adductors, things like that. Um, they do a lot of stability, uh, especially in the transverse plane or rotational movements. Uh, so trying to control that force. We see a lot, uh, they do a lot with deceleration, again, especially with rotation. Uh, they assist trunk muscles under larger loads and, and controlling movement. So it's it's kind of that next level. So they, they provide stability, they help with some movement, um, and again, making that connection with the upper and lower body. And then our final system, our global movers, these are going to be um, uh, the big movers, right? These are the ones that directly control movement, right? That they're going to create the power uh, that will, will transfer from the arms, legs, things like that. So here we'll have like the lats and the glutes are, are some big global uh, movers here where they're going to create a lot of the power that the other, the, the global and the, uh, the, the deep stabilizers are going to help assist create stability so the global movers can do their job. Uh, so a lot of times what we have, and the global stabilizers are, are also stabilizers as well. So under heavy loads, uh, they're going to help, like think like deadlifts. You're going to pick up something really heavy. These are going to assist in stability there. Um, so when these three areas aren't working in together, we see lots of issues. And typically what happens is we focus on the big stuff, the outer stuff. So a lot of the global movers and maybe a little bit of the global stabilizers get most of the attention. And now we have the big muscles trying to do everything. They're trying to move, stabilize, and take the, the role of the deep stabilizers. And now we start to have issues because they, they can help each other out, but they can't do the same thing. Right? So if we don't have our deep stabilizers doing what they're supposed to do, the global stabilizers are gonna be less effective at what they do and the global movers are gonna be less effective at what they do. So uh, we have a direct line where we can see this lack of core control is going to reduce movement, reduce performance, speed, power, strength, all of those different things. So no one area is more important than the other. We just need them all working together. So uh, the main thing, I, I again, I, I hope I didn't lose a lot of you with getting into uh, some of the details here, but I just think it's worth bringing up that the core is multifaceted. It has lots of different functions, which means, and here's what I want you to leave here with, is it needs different areas of attention, different areas of focus. So you should be doing lots of different 
types of core training. You can't just like throw a couple planks in there and be like, my core's good. Or you can't just deadlift heavy and say, I'm doing all the core training I need. It doesn't work that way, right? And a lot of people are like one or uh, the other end of the spectrum. We need a lot of balance here and, and hitting each of these different segments there. So um, making this as practical as possible, uh, let's focus on some areas that you can really involve in your training that are gonna to touch on some of these different areas. So if we start with the deep stabilizers. So like I mentioned earlier, they provide information. When you are, when a joint is not in proper alignment, they can't send the right information to the central nervous system to say, hey, we need to move, we need to do this, we need to stabilize. They're gonna have a hard time, so they're always going uphill. So what you need to do is one, how's your posture looking, right? Is your spine in a good position? Does it move? Same thing for your hips. So. Uh, one thing is start with some movement of your spine. And I know that might sound like the opposite of what everybody says, but really the spine is designed to move some. Now I'm not saying that means we're gonna do hundreds of reps of sit-ups and crunches um, and under load, move the spine a lot. It just is saying your spine should be able to move. So a great place you can start is with like an exercise like cat-cow. Right? when you're on all fours and you're going through flexion and extension. Now, this is just a great way, and it always feels good when you're doing it, um, to create some movement of the spine in flexion and in extension, right? So I know sometimes we hear that's bad, but really you need to make sure your spine can move that way. And this is a little tough to do on your own. It takes uh, a trained eye to really point out when you watch somebody do a cat cow, you start to see that all the movements occurring at just a few vertebrae. This is a problem. Right, because if you have back issues, I bet I can guess exactly where your pain is. It's right where all of the motion occurs. So when you do these cat cows, you want to start to think each vertebrae starts to move on its own at once. So you start whatever way you want to start, you know, at the hips and work your way up. Each vertebrae one by one is trying to move into flexion, and then you reverse it into extension. So it's not just about moving the spine back and back and forth. It's about consciously thinking about the different areas: the the lumbar spine, the thoracic spine, the cervical spine, all being able to move independently of each other. But you'll see a lot of people get stuck in certain areas, and the whole unit moves at one, and they can't really break this up. Um, a good way to help with this and another great way to train the deep stabilizers is with breath work. And I, and I know we've already talked a ton about this. Again, you could check out the show notes for a couple good breathing exercises. But if you're not doing anything to improve your breath work, uh, you're going to have a hard time engaging some of these deep stabilizers. So, you know, getting the diaphragm working, uh, creating intra-abdominal pressure. So the pelvic floor and the, and the diaphragm and the TBA and the multifidi are all working together. Um, is going to be very helpful. So using breath work to do that. Uh, even a little bit of compression, right? So we can do things to compress the spine slightly. I'm not talking about crush your spine, but something where like you're on all fours and you have a stability ball on your backside up against the wall, like you're holding it up with, with your butt. And then just pushing into that ball like you're trying to pop it. When you do that, you're going to feel some of those deep muscles start to engage, right? Because we're creating some compression and your muscles will fight that a little bit and create some stability. Uh, you can even do something like a low threshold plank. So when you get into a plank, I want you to think about turning off some of the big muscles, the global stabilizers, the, the global movers, right? Relax your thighs, relax your glutes, relax the, the outer abdominal muscles. You're going to see all of a sudden you can still hold good position, relaxing all these areas and you're going to get a little shaky, right? That's the idea. Like, can you create stability without the help from all the big, big guys there? 
Right, so those are just a good way, couple ways to train those deep stabilizers. Uh, so make sure you include a few of those in your, your routine. Uh, moving on to our global stabilizers, this is where we start to think about a little bit more bigger stability. So now we have a little bit more force. Uh, we're actually looking a lot at like the anti-movements, like anti-extension, anti-rotation, right? So you might see things like chops and lifts and planks, and planks with arm and leg movement, right? Raising an arm, raising a leg. Mountain climbers, you know, when you do a mountain climber, you're gonna do it really slow, and you're gonna put a foam roller on your back, or pretend you had a glass of water on your back, and don't let it spill, right? So our movement is very, um, very focused on the limb without creating any movement at the trunk, right? So this is a little bit bigger stability, and it's really hard when you start to focus on that. Those shoulder taps that I talked about earlier in this episode, that's another great example of a global uh, stability, right? So creating stability of the trunk when arm and, and or leg movement might occur. So you're, you're trying to show to me that you can prevent force from moving you, right? So rotational force, flexion force, extension force, whatever it might be, right? So this is where a lot of people focus uh, much of their core training. Um, and then our last step with our global movers, now we're gonna tie it all together. So now we're gonna create some, some movement. So now we might actually see something like rotation. Uh, this could be like a strength, more of a strength rotation with like a cable or a band or something like this, or um, one neglected area with core training is power, right? That's the idea is we create power from the ground up. So as our feet hit the ground when we're running, the core transfers that energy up so the opposite arm can move. Um, and we create our gate, gate mechanics there, right? But we need that stability for all of this to happen in the core. So it all needs to work together now. And I think adding power to your core training is a great way. Uh, simple way to do this are like med ball throws, med ball slams, rotational throws, right? Not just throwing an object as hard as you can, but thinking about how the energy is being passed along. We create energy at the feet, it moves up the legs, it transfers through the hip spine, and then eventually to the shoulders as we release a ball and throw it up against the wall or something along those lines. Uh, and then yes, you can throw in your deadlifts here, your squats, your heavy lifting where we need max stability, um, high threshold planks. So I, I mentioned low threshold where we're trying to turn off some of those big muscles. What if we think about a high threshold? So now you're trying to engage um, as many muscles as possible. So as you get into a plank, now you're going to think about uh, pulling your elbows down towards your feet, pulling your feet up towards your elbows, squeezing your legs, squeezing your glutes, squeezing your abs, holding everything as tight as you can while breathing, which is really hard. You're gonna see, you can hold this for about 10 seconds, that's usually it, right? So we have max contraction there. Um, so basically the complete opposite of the low threshold. So I hope this gives you some ideas on really what core training is and how you can be much more effective with your training when you fully train the spectrum of what core training is from the, the deep stabilizers all the way up to the global movers. So if you're not including at least one exercise in each of these areas, I think it's something that you really need to start doing as simple as breathing, cat-cow movements, uh, our anti-core training movements uh, like our, our planks or mountain climbers, chops, lifts, things like that. And then our bigger total body movements where we kind of tie it all together. A lot of people just get stuck in one area. So you're going to take some of these throw them into your program. Now, where do you put them in your program? I think it's it's good to scatter them throughout. You know, a lot of the deep stabilizers, that's a great place to start. 
um, because once you get fatigued, it's really hard to focus on some of those things. So uh, I think starting your workout, you know, as part of your warm up, including some of those deep stabilizer exercises, is a great place to start. Um, and then you can move on to some of the higher levels. But feel free integrate this all over the place, right? You might be doing some squats, deadlifts, and then as your rest, you drop down and do some cat cow movements or some breathing exercises or something like that. So really throw it in randomly all over the place. That's that's how you know you're doing it well is when you can throw it in anywhere in your workout and really learn from it versus doing it, you know, uh, set after set after set in the beginning of a workout and then never thinking about it again for the rest of the workout. So uh, I am a big fan of throwing core in really all over the place, right? So just, just get it in there first and then you can be a little bit more creative with how you uh, put it in your program. All right, so I hope that sheds the light on core training, uh, gives you a few ideas. Again, if you uh, go to the show notes for this episode, I will make sure I at least include a few videos of some of the exercises I talked about so you have a good idea of what some of these core training exercises involve. All right, well, that's going to do it for episode number 60. Again, if you want to check out any of the videos, links, uh, anything we talked about in this episode, you can go to ocrunderground.com slash episode dash 60. Don't forget that includes my brand new Ultra Beast training program. Get free Hand Master Plus uh, and 30 bucks off when you sign up now. Um, if you're not sure and just want to see what my style of training is like, don't forget, you can actually check out our two-week jumpstart OCR training program. Uh, that's totally free. Just head over to ocrunderground.com slash free dash training. At least you can see what it's like and before you commit to the four-month training plan. Uh, I do want to give a big thanks to our sponsors to the show as well as CJ Wagner for giving us our race recap. Uh, my next race is going to be up in Big Bear. If you are going to be there and you see me around, please say say hey. And if you want to get on the show and do a quick post-race interview, I would love, love to do that. Uh, but that's it for now. We'll be back soon with another awesome episode. But until then, keep training smarter.